0: Welcome to Women Igniting Change, the place to be for women leaders and decision makers who are passionate about changing the world and determined to act. I'm your host, Robin Jorgensen, former corporate executive, global speaker, and founder and CEO of Women Igniting Change. Let's dive in. Hello, changemakers. Welcome back to the Women Igniting Change podcast. Today in the studio, we have a very distinguished guest, Ambassador Erthrin Cousin. She has been named one of Time's 100 most influential people. She's on the Forbes 100 most powerful women list and has been designated as one of the 500 most powerful people on the planet by foreign policy magazine. She is the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. agencies for food and agriculture in Rome. She's the former executive director of the U.N. World Food Program and is currently the founder and CEO of Food Systems for the Future. Ambassador, welcome to the show.
1: It's terrific to be here today, Robin. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's start with your personal journey a little bit. So your career has taken you from working in the legal field and public service to international humanitarian work. Can you share some pivotal moments or experiences that led you to become that global advocate for ending hunger and improving food security?
1: Wow. Um, as, how much time do we have? Um, it's been, as, as you want, it's been a life. It's been a journey and uh, it started as a child. I grew up on in on the west side of the city of Chicago, and for any of your your viewers or listeners who know, that's a, a one of the poorer communities in the city of Chicago. But the, during the time that I lived there, it was a lot of working class black families, uh, and my mom and dad were both committed to change and providing opportunities, not only for their children, but for their communities. My mother was a social worker. My dad was a community organizer before Barack Obama made it popular. And we, what that meant for us as children was were the, was that we were involved in everything that was happening in our communities. Yeah. That means that when they were organizing for rallies or for elections, it was in my living room. And so we saw committed people with the goal of making change and making life better. But very specifically for us, my my dad and my grandmother both own restaurants. And neither one of them were good business people <laughs> because if you didn't have money, they still fed you. Right. That's not a way to run a restaurant if you want to make a dollar. And uh, but they were as committed to ensuring that no one went hungry as they were to running a business. Yeah. Um We were the house where my mom would always ensure we had balls and bats and, ba- and, and basketballs to ensure that children had who didn't have means had access to tools to Have a childhood, and so people in the inner city would come and sign out to bat, balls and bats for my house, and they always brought them back because they knew that it was there for them then as i got, as I finished my my education and I became an attorney, I became a lawyer on the south side of the city of Chicago, another area where working class hardworking community but what would be defined as a poor poorer or poor community and the the clients who came through our doors with legal problems they weren't really legal problems they were they were problems that were manifesting themselves as legal issues but they the structural challenges that these families or individuals were facing were educational challenges they were challenges of of poverty of 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 um all kinds of housing issues, and uh, that were, as I said, manifesting themselves at that moment as legal issues. And so all of those experiences in my life led me to acknowledge that whatever I was going to do in my career, it wasn't about just making a living, but making a difference. And the opportunity to make a difference in food continued to to raise its head throughout my entire career, Uh, whether it was working for Jewel food stores as a senior vice president for public affairs and building stores and communities that would otherwise have been food deserts, or it was serving as the executive director for the, 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 the deputy executive director for what is now Feeding America. Those pivotal opportunities to serve, to provide access to more nutritious food, continue to continue to rise up and i continue to 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 accept them and do and uh, with a goal of doing my part to make the world a better place
0: yeah so you had beautiful role models all the way through that showed you how affecting change can make a massive difference that's incredible In,
1: indeed Indeed, from my grandmother, to my mother, to my father, to the, 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 those who, who sat in our living room and, and talked about the, what was not our reality, but what was our possibility. Oh, I just got chills when you said that. That's
0: huge. Wow. Your role as U.S. Ambassador to UN Agencies for Food and Agriculture in Rome was really instrumental in addressing global food issues. Can you share some insights from your time in that role and how that contributed to your mission to end hunger and malnutrition
1: wow the, there's so many there um, sp- uh, are so many different issues, so many different uh, experiences, but let me just give you a couple one. I had the privilege of leading a delegation, a bipartisan congressional delegation to Sudan, to South Sudan, Mm -hmm. right after independence for South Sudan. Wow. And going into the areas that where the newly independent citizens of South Sudan were beginning to develop the agriculture, um, Programs that were necessary for them to not only feed their families but to support the economic independence of of the communities, the families, the community, and the country. And we took time while we were there to talk to women who had many of them had walked with their families and their children from Sudan to South Sudan in hopes of finding opportunity yeah. in this new country. And when you see that level of determination, it gives you again, the opportunity to see not the reality but the possibility. Right. Another example in Guatemala, uh, the the U S and was in, uh, through USAID invested and in, continues to invest in agricultural development programs and one of the programs that. Um, I went to visit during my time as U.S. ambassador was a program to increase food security and reduce malnutrition of indigenous people living in the hills in Guatemala and those who lived in the hills. But they worked in the large farms in the lowlands in Guatemala and this home garden program was to incentivize these the the these poor farm workers to grow their own food increasing their economic opportunities as well as the food security for their families but what we found was it served the first purpose increasing economic opportunities but not so much the second of the increasing food security and nutrition for their own families because they were conditioned. Many of those that we were working with conditioned that what you grow, you don't eat. It is, it is for sale. And so they would grow food and sell it and then buy snacks, buy high, high fat, high sugar foods for their children because they could then afford what they considered indulgence and luxuries to provide to their children. And so it is, we need to recognize that as we work with the a good a lesson I learned there was as we work with affected uh, people, we must build awareness. And as well as providing the, the awareness of the, the need for consumption of more diverse nutritious diets, as well as providing the access to the financial resources and the foods for changing those diets. And the, the last story I'll give you is I had the privilege. Uh, uh, When I first became U.S. ambassador, representing the U.S. at the Food and Agriculture, or at at FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, at the Rome Food Summit, where the global community unanimously adopted a declaration committing all the nations of the world to eradicate hunger in the earliest possible date. Then, and and as part of this, the, the declaration, there was a pledge to substantially increase aid to agriculture in developing countries. This was before the Sustainable Development Goals, before mm-hmm. Paris set the stage. And it was the first time, and I was sitting in the chair proudly for this opportunity. It's the first time the world, including the United States, unanimously supported the progressive, progressive realization of the right to food for all. That just seems like such
0: an, uh, an of course. What? <laughs> you know what i mean so to to have that need to be a declaration speaks volume in and of
1: itself well here's the the rest of that story the entire world through the at the human rights conference had already signed on to the right to food except the united states we were the outliers we had not signed on before this and wow. before this before the World Food Summit. And it was because, and you can think about this from from a U.S. standpoint, the concern about creating a new right that could result in additional litigation in the United States using a right to food to bring actions against the U.S. government for food insecurity in the United States. So the concern about creating more litigation in the U.S. was much of the reason why the U.S. had not signed on to the international convention that supported the right to food. But by creating the right language, the progressive realization of a right to food, which means that we are all working together to achieve a right to food, to, the a right to food and the, and the access to food for all, we suddenly were able to get the U.S. on board. And I was proud to have the ability to negotiate with my government and then to present to the world the U.S.'s acknowledgement and joining the entire global community in supporting the progressive realization of the right to freedom. That's incredible. What
0: leadership qualities or principles have been instrumental in your journey and how do you adapt them to navigate different contexts?
1: Hmm. Leadership principles. Leadership, you know, I, I, I think about this often because I'm asked quite that question or similar questions. And and I think we, we think too hard about what makes good leaders. First of all, character. If you, if you are not a person that the, those around you respect uh, because of your lack of honesty or your, your lack of integrity, um, you, it makes it challenging to suggest that you can lead. Um, I, and I would also say communication and communication, not just the ability to speak, but the ability to listen and mm-hmm. to, and to then that and, and to, to, to listen and to consider the differences of others. So that communication, that credibility, honesty and integrity. And then I would, I would say emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Huge um, because. Everybody is different. Right. And the willingness to understand and accept everyone, that everyone brings different perspectives, requiring listening and consideration. That's the only way you can lead. Right. So if you can do those things, that's the start of a really good leader.
0: Yeah, I love that. You place a strong emphasis on scalability in addressing global malnutrition. So how does Food Systems for the Future identify and support initiatives that have the potential for that large-scale impact?
1: Sure. And, and when we're working to identify what's scalable, we look at how to identify, select, and support businesses that, and, and programs that have the ability to make nutritious food more affordable and available. That's the first criteria. That's our first lens that we always use. Then we look at financial viability, the potential for the financial growth and scale. And, and we're interested in working, uh, in communities with founders where capital historically has been slow or to flow or has not flown, has not, uh, come into those communities been invested in those communities uh with any success because money follows success right. and if we if we are not identifying those businesses that have the potential for successful financial return that then 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 we fail not only on our mission but in developing the 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 narrative for where opportunities lie where people have historically believed they did not you know our goal is to provide capital as well as wraparound support advocacy partnerships and and business operation support to ensure that we can make programs and businesses successful and uh, the, that micro-level work also requires that we perform the macro-level ecosystem work to make change. And that ecosystem work is advocacy for nutrition awareness. If, if we can't drive demand from consumers for more nutritious food, then making more nutritious food affordable and available will fail. Right. We also work to increase... The private sector capital flow by working with, with governments to support the identification of, of public sector capital that can catalyze private sector capital investment. So, we're looking to de risk capital stacks where to ensure that we can overcome the traditional argument. That investing in certain communities, certain entrepreneurs, certain products or businesses is too risky Mm -hmm. by avoiding the, eliminating that risk or, or minimizing that risk through either government capital or philanthropic capital that will help us drive the Finances that are necessary to make the change that is required to scale those businesses successfully.
0: What I love about that is it really is a 360 degree approach. You're looking at it from a multitude of facets and coming at it from all of those angles simultaneously in order to have it be successful. I love that. That's amazing.
1: And let me just add thank you for saying that because so much of my career. It's been spent in the advocacy work, partnership building work the in the nonprofit sector and UN. And so I have some in the finance community who say, Erdlin, you should just stick to the advocacy stuff. You're really good at that. And my response is there are a lot of people out here doing advocacy. But the challenge is the change is not occurring just because we're saying the right things. (laughs) Right. Unless we can move the capital that is necessary to actually scale the change that is required. It's just talking.
0: Right. Yeah. So globally, Food Systems for the Future, you're creating this incredible initiative. It's a nutrition impact measurement and management framework, which just sounds Amazing. <laughs> How does that work, and what are the key objectives
1: of it? You know, yeah, they, they, again, great question. Thank you. The um, <laughs> the when we to to we we recognize that food system for the future, and I say we because I have a team okay. of of amazing PhD nutritionists. Um, who, who support this work through their academic as well as their experiences that they bring to the, to the change that we're working to create. And we recognize that to achieve a data driven market based food systems transformation, we need measurement. Mm-hmm if you can't measure it you can't make the change
0: right. and
1: you you need a, a measurement as well as a management system of those of 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 the of the changes that you're trying to drive that can evaluate and as well as the evaluation that is necessary for the value chain and it must be a, a available accessible and relevant at context level so that means whether wherever the geography where Whatever the community that this tool must work, and the, the tool must provide a three hundred and sixty degree view of impact investment, and so it 's grounded in four key impact dimensions: increasing nutritional value, increasing availability, affordability, and awareness mm-hmm. and we the tool is inclusive of. Of all activities across the food value chain to, in order that we can create and, and allow for the measurement of the systemic, or the systemic measurement and evaluation of, of the, of, of whatever the tool, whatever the, the intervention is that we are measuring. So the, we execute it with practical evidence based tools. Across that invest investment life cycle when we are working with investors. So we look at what impact is the, is the actual investment or intervention having today? And then we measure once the investment is made, what now is the impact? Yeah. And so it is, it is critical that, um, you have a life cycle, um, measurement the tool that allows for measurement. And that is in order for us to achieve our key objectives of transparency and accountability, and and data-informed decision making. The tools that champion success, because as we talked about, success money follows success, Mm -hmm. and if you're investing in interventions that you can measurably identify as delivering that success, you can report it and you can verify it, we know that additional capital will flow. And that will attract more public as well as private sector investment. Yeah. So you've mentioned that achieving
0: a resilient, just and sustainable food system, it requires global investment that are tailored to those local needs. And in Africa specifically, you're helping to lead that work in Rwanda, which is near and dear to our hands. Yeah by scaling and supporting the poultry value chain. Can
1: mm-hmm.
0: you share a little bit more about that process and the
1: impact you hope to achieve there. Mm-hmm. Well, Rwanda is an amazing place as you it know. It is indeed, it's my it's second a, home. I, just, I love it. Ma- it's the cleanest country on the continent. <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've ever, yep. if, if you forgive, for those of, who have not visited, it's an ama- it's a, a beautiful country. Um. Mm-hmm but it's a country that is plagued by persistent child malnutrition despite the increasing economic uh growth of the country there's a 30 persistent 30% uh child malnutrition chronic child malnutrition rate and, and resulting in stunting and as you know stunting is not just a physical challenge but a mental challenge that uh, once it occurs the consequences are irreversible and so the, the government is committed to addressing and, and eliminating the stunting challenge. And one of the tools that is required is increased consumption of a more nutritious diet, mm-hmm.
0: including
1: more protein. And so the ministry of agriculture and the ministry of health working together are focused on increasing the, the consumption of poultry by pregnant and breastfeeding women, as well as by children. And it, with children, it's eggs, because the data has been shown that regular consumption of eggs in children has a significant impact on nutrition levels in that child. But the problem in Rwanda is the high cost of eggs, right. the high cost of poultry, the high cost, because of that 70% of the cost of producing is feed. And feed, Is soy based, and soy is not grown in Rwanda, right? And as a result, the feed costs are always quite high, resulting in high production crop costs, resulting in high retail costs of eggs. And so, in order to address that challenge, we worked with the Ministry of Agriculture to identify a, a solution, and that is black soldier fly larvae. Black soldier fly larvae can be used as a substitute for soy in feed, bringing down the cost of the feed. As a result, bringing down the cost of production. As a result, bringing down the cost of retail, the retail cost of eggs, providing for the opportunity for more consumption of eggs by children across the country. That's incredible. And so we are working with ProTix, which is one of the largest um, black soldier fly larvae producer co- producing companies in the world. They're in the Netherlands. And they're our partners, along with, uh, we have an african uh, a Rwandan, uh, feed company who, uh, J- JP will become the CEO of this company once we, we put shovels in the ground. Um, and we are working together to build the first of its kind fully automated Black Soldier Fly Larvae facility, not the first of its kind. On the, in Rwanda or the first of its kind in, on the continent of Africa, but the first of its kind in all of the global South. Wow. This is a technology that is coming online very quickly in Europe and the U, in, and North America, but not in the global South. And so this will be the first of its kind in, the, in, in, in the, in the global South. And let this, let's just talk about how fun. This this project is not only are, will we drive the results that we've talked about with uh, with feed, but the waste product from the production of the feed is a is a frosh that can be used as a high value organic fertilizer, mm-hmm. and at a time when fertilizers are becoming so expensive for smallholder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, here is a high-value, unavailable today, organic fertilizer that can be used to increase the growth of fruits and vegetables for farmers in in Rwanda. That's incredible. And I have one more for you that makes this amazing. Love it. This brings us full circle because, as you know, food waste and loss is one of the most significant emitters Mm -hmm. of greenhouse gases, organic food waste in particular. The feedstock for the flies is organic food waste. And so we're creating full circularity in the food system by using the food waste for the feedstock for the flies using the, the fly larvae to uh-huh. then support the, the access to more nutritious eggs and support organic food waste while, again, I, I, I'm sorry, organic uh, fertilizer. While, again, the production of more fruits and vegetables, the waste from that will become the feedstock for the flies. That's the type of sustainable food systems transformation that we need, that is good for environmental health, human health, and will increase the economic return to all of the actors across the food system.
0: Yeah, that's beyond incredible. And that's the type of thinking that we need to have as we approach these sometimes almost insurmountable challenges. We need that fresh, innovative approach to decision-making and coming up with new ideas and getting ourselves out of the business and status
1: as usual mm-hmm. to address
0: them. I love that.
1: That's amazing. And i tell you what is even more amazing. Everyone says you can't bring automation and onto the continent, that we need to b- build small programs. I say... <laughs> the, what the, I, let me just say that we the innovation that we know is necessary to drive the food system trans- transformation in the global north is the exact same type of innovation that we need to bring onto the continent to increase the opportunity and the prosperity for those on the african continent and wow. i'm and this will help us support again evidence to support the narrative to drive success that will drive additional capital
0: yeah Yeah. Well, I, you and I could talk about Rwanda all day. (laughs) Let's switch over to the U S for a minute. So you're embarking on a mission here in the States to ensure that communities have the access that they need to fresh, affordable food. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what's currently not working and your approach to addressing
1: that. What's not working. And in, in, we, we, we spend so much time talking about over there. Let's talk about right here at home, as you right. said. And estimated one in eight people in the United States or over 41 million Americans lack consistent and reliable access, uh, or the financial resources to purchase culturally appropriate, nutritious and affordable food. Wow. That's a, a huge issue. One in four people in a food line in the United States is a child and let's let's talk about the effect that that's having on us as a population here in the United States where in 2022 we spent 412 billion dollars including 306 billion dollars in direct medical costs on diabetes in the United States which is a diet related disease directly related to the lack of access the lack of demand, the lack of the lack of affordability of affordable, nutritious food right mm-hmm. here in the United States.
0: So the, the ripple effect of not having that
1: nutritious food is exacerbated in a multitude of areas. Right. Because many low income communities and we're not just talking about urban communities. Right. So often when we talk about those who lack access to affordable, nutritious food, people point to urban mm-hmm. communities. Yes, there is a problem in urban community. There is also a problem in rural America because we are seeing main streets close in rural America across all of rural America. And those who lack access, those, those same populations, those with limited incomes, lack of access to transportation, the infirm, the elderly are affected whether they live in rural Iowa, or in the urban center of Chicago because of lack of access to, to food, to food. We often call those food deserts. Right. But they're really grocery deserts. Mm. Because there's all kinds of food in these communities, What's but what type it's, of- it's what type of food? It's yeah. not, it's not fresh food. It's not new. It's often not nutritious food and it's, it's high density fat, um, yeah. as well as fast food restaurants. And so what we're looking to do is the, the, the challenge is the lack of access to affordable retail, Food, retail through retail uh, institutions, mm-hmm. providing access to affordable, nutritious food.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that reframe. That's a that's huge. Yeah. What have you learned in your career about the importance of collaboration and partnership in achieving lasting solutions to this issue?
1: There is no one organization, no one person who can do it alone. Yeah. Without partnerships, it's not going to the, the ambitious goals that we've talked about here today of ensuring that food is health means something for everyone everywhere won't happen. We won't make the difference that is necessary. And, and too often when when policymakers or advocates do not partner with communities, we lose the advantage of the knowledge that's already possessed by that community. Oftentimes what the community needs is not for us to come in with new answers, Mm -hmm. but to come in with, to provide the support that is necessary for the positive action that is already occurring in those communities. And so partnership and communication is critical to making structural change. If all we want to do is invest in a a new program, then you can do that without partnership. But if you're looking to make structural change, you won't achieve the goals and the full benefit of the investment without partnership.
0: Yeah. So you were at COP28 and you, you mentioned that in your recap that it was a watershed moment for putting food systems on the climate agenda. Can you share what some of those key takeaways were?
1: Well, the world has finally realized that if you don't address the challenges of food systems transformation for a sustainable transformation of the food system, that you're not going to achieve our ambitious climate goals right. that the entire global community embraced at the Paris as part of the Paris Accord. 30% of all the greenhouse gases emitted come, are, are, are on an annual basis are emitted by the food systems, from what happens on the farm, to how we transport, to how we warehouse, to how we sell, to how we consume and dispose of food. So it requires investment across that entire food system, right? And so COP 28 was the first uh, of the Cops where food system was as much of a priority in the conversation as as agriculture. I'm sorry, as energy and and transportation. And it was the first COP where 150 plus countries came together in support of what is now titled the UAE Food Systems Transformation Declaration. We, we, with we, as a community of advocates for food system transformation under the Secretary General, we, in 2019, the world came together with and supported the UN Food uh, Systems Summit, UNFSS. Check the box. But we were not included in the climate declaration, and so
0: it was an imperative.
1: It was huge that the voices of those working to address food systems were were included in the conversation. But the reality is, only four percent of all the climate finance money is invested in food systems transformation. Oh. Despite the fact that 30% of the greenhouse gases are emitted by food system transformation. And the new advocacy work coming out (laughs) of the countries that are, we need to embrace the, the, the investments in the sustainable transformation of the food system are not prioritizing greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. Because they're prioritizing, when they think about food systems, they're prioritizing food security and nutrition. So unlike energy or transportation, our issues of addressing food systems and nutrition are inextricably bound to greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Which for the climate envoys across the globe, that's not language they're accustomed to. Mm, yeah. Or negotiations that they're accustomed to participating in. Yeah, And so what we learned at COP28 was it is we need to move food system onto the agenda. Check the box. It's there. But now we need to ensure that we are performing that advocacy work that you talked mm-hmm. about between the cops with climate envoys as well as with agriculture ministers, to ensure that when they get to COP29 and COP30, mm-hmm. that they have talking points that include invest, the support for investments in food systems transformation, as well as for the reduction of energy and carbon-based emissions.
0: Yeah. So now you're you're at seat at the table in that specific issue. Now the work begins on that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So as a leader in advocating for food security, you've had the opportunity to influence policymakers, various organizations. What are some policy changes or initiatives that you believe are crucial for addressing global food insecurity in the coming years outside of what we
1: just discussed? Sure, sure. There's about 700 billion dollars annually that is invested in agricultural subsidies. Most of it, Good most of it is invested in agricultural production systems that are emitting those greenhouse gases that you and I have been talking about. And so we need to to re- differently prioritize support for the sustainable food systems transformation. And this does not mean that we will not have big agriculture. That, that to suggest that you're not going to to continue to support large farm uh, establishments. That's whether you're talking here in the United States or Brazil or 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 in in, in other part, other parts of the globe but it also means that we need a diversity of solutions. We need more sustainable agricultural production of whether you're talking about row crops or fruits and vegetables. We need the, the more sustainable livestock management. And so we need the subsidies that are necessary to support that sustainable livestock management. We need to bring on alternative proteins. And some call them supplementary proteins that are as well as, as, um, as that sustainable livestock management mm-hmm. and we need we need different investments in fisheries in, in manners that will reduce the the impact that fisheries are having on biodiversity so all of those those investments from the public sector that are required that we that are, that, are, that are subsidized today we need to continue to do but we need to do it better Yeah. So, and we also, if we bring it, let me give you an example. Let's bring it here to the United States. About 85% of everything that we subsidize here, the the subsidies in the United States, enter to about 15% of the farms, the large farmers. The, the fruits and vegetables and legumes are still considered specialty crops. And as such, they're not, they're the, 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 the types of subsidies that are available to large commodity crop farmers are not available to them. Yeah. Many of those, the 85% of those farmers that don't receive those subsidies today, their primary income is not from their farm. It is from a second job that they have besides farming. As a result, we're pushing farmers off the land because they can't afford to farm. So we need to change our policy so we can change the economics of farming to ensure that we can keep farmers farming. You know, right now, there are less than 50,000 black farmers in the United States. Wow. Because the, And that's down from uh, uh, more than a million black farmers at the turn of the century at the turn of the 19th century, uh, the 20th century. And we're seeing, we're seeing a reduction every single year. So we we need to support local and regional processing, investing in rural communities to provide opportunities to remain in those rural communities. And the last thing I would say is that we need policies that support consumers, whether it's, programs like the SNAP program in the United States or the WIC program that ensure that food nutritious food is a, is a v- affordable for every American to ensure the financial ability of everyone to purchase food but we also need to to across the economic spectrum support policies that increase awareness of the importance of Consuming a more balanced and nutritious diet. Yeah, that education component is lacking, but and, and we don't, we should not demonize any food. We should not have policies yeah. that demonize any food. I'm uh, all about the indulgent food. You know, there 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 is a place for an Oreo cookie, <laughs> and 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 so, but not it's not at the center of the plate right as and so providing the opportunity to for consumers to make the decisions that are necessary through the policies that support better consumer awareness is becomes quite critical
0: yeah so as i mentioned at the top of the episode you've been recognized as one of forbes 100 most powerful women among numerous other prestigious accolades <laughs> what message or advice do you have for individuals especially women who aspire to make a meaningful impact on global issues?
1: Begin in your neighborhood, Mm. in your city, in your state. And uh, because global, we are part of the global community, wherever you are on the globe. You are, yeah. And so don't think about, when you think about the global change, something over there, think right here first. And then you need to vote for politicians who recognize the importance of adequate access to sustainably nutritious food for all, mm. whether at home or abroad. Because too often, when we see <laughs> when we see nationalist policies that don't support access to nutritious food, is because people say voters don't care. They say people don't care about what's happening. Outside of their communities, outside of their nation. Right. And we need to prove them wrong right. by how we vote first and foremost. Love Not that. just what we talk about, but how we vote. And tell the story to politicians who say no one cares. Yeah. I love that. You know, like the quick story. I was on, I was on a, I was on an elevator. <laughs> And with a, with a elected official who will go unnamed. And he was on his, he was on his phone. He was on his phone. And he looked up, he said, Hey, Earth, still feeding the babies? I said, yes, sir. That's what I do. I feed the babies. And he said, you know, nobody gives it." and he caught himself just as he was saying that. And he said, you know, I'm just kidding with you. But he was serious. Oh, he was serious. And he thought. It's Earthren. She's my friend. I can say that. But then he realized. But the reality is too many of those in power look at each one of us here in America with our own challenges and say, we don't give up. Whatever. Right. We need to prove them wrong. Yeah. Wow. That's how you start to make global change.
0: Yeah, for sure. So for businesses or investors who are looking to align their operations with nutrition and health focused goals, what are some practical steps or strategies that you can recommend for them?
1: Well, I'd start with the, 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 the policy, the, the macro Mm-hmm. Um, system that's that needs changing that we've been talking about. And, and and we need businesses, business leaders who have outside influence sometimes to support the policies that de-risk investments and in food systems transformation. So as we talk about changes in subsidy, those are business opportunities. Government is never going to have enough capital. Just as they capitalize the energy transformation, they, they, they the then the 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 real capital that made the difference came in from the private sector but it did not come into the it did not flow into energy until government catalyzed those investments by de-risking investments in, in renewable energy yeah so we need those same that same kind of advocacy from investors in food systems policies that will ensure that that capital flows to Got support it. the de-risking of the capital stack that will result in the private sector capital then eliminating the issue of risk and being willing to make the investments that are necessary to, to drive the changes. That, that are not only desired, but required. We also need to understand the issues around food as medicine, as driving more capital, more investment into the food system. But let's remember, food is health. And so we need businesses and investors driving capital, not just at the onset of diet-related disease into making Food more available and affordable, but as a part of prevention, and again, that's where public capital, philanthropic capital, coming in together with private sector capital to make food more available and more affordable, and more sustainably produced. Uh, a, a reality, back to that, not our reality, but our possibility.
0: Yeah. So you know, a lot of people you talked about starting locally, right, in your own communities. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a passion around helping with food insecurity, but they don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. So what are some tips that you can give people in their own communities as to how to get involved locally?
1: Well, I'd say that if you want to get involved in food security in your local community, start with your local food banks, your local food pantries. They need your help. They need your, they need your support. They need your, 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 your financial, your capacity, your intellectual capacity support. They need your advocacy support because they are our frontline defenses. That's a, we, we often take our, our safety net system here in the United States for granted, but our safety net system is better than most other countries in the world. We also need to ensure that people in their communities are recognizing that changes that we need to make in our food system should not come online for just the affluent. They need to come online for everyone. Right. So, we need the advocacy work. That's back again to what I was saying before about being willing to get involved in campaigns in your community uh-huh. that provide that will elect candidates that are willing to support food affordability, availability, sustainability not just for your community but right. for every community. And hmm. that kind of citizen involvement and engagement is what made our what's made our country great. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm one of those people who will tell you in a heartbeat. I am glad I was born in the United States of America. And that I've been in places in the world where when I saw an American flag, it made my heart happy because I knew I was home, I was safe, it was okay. And I could tell lots of stories. That's for another podcast. Uh huh. But the reality of it is, what makes us Envy, the envy of the world today is our citizens care and we make a difference. We give to charities. We support our neighbors. We support those who don't look like us, who are not, who are from outside of our communities. That's what's made us great. Yeah. That's what we should be proud of and not run from mm. and continue to do. As we, if we want to make the kind of change that is necessary, that ensures a, not, a, not just available food that is available, affordable, and nutritious for everyone, but also ensures prosperity and opportunity for everyone.
0: Yeah. We literally could spend, I could spend hours talking to you, <laughs> um, but I want to be cognizant of time. Where can our listeners learn more
1: about food systems for the future? Thanks for that. Uh, we, I'd ask all of your listeners, all of your viewers to go to www.fsfinstitute.net. And I'd also ask you, friend us on LinkedIn. We are daily put up new information that is relevant to what you can do to get involved in addressing the issues of the sustainable transformation of the food system.
0: Ambassador, thank you so much. This was insightful, informative, passionate, educational. I cannot thank you enough. And for our listeners, we will have links in the show notes to Food Systems for the Future and the ambassador's bio, and we will see you back here next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Women Igniting Change. I know creating change matters to you. If you enjoy what we talk about on the show, please take one action today and share it with someone who could benefit from listening. Until next time, keep standing up and speaking out for what matters.